Welcome to Season 6, Episode 9 of the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer using the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne. Each week, we use a movie, a novel, or a short story to study different storytelling principles so that we can deepen our understanding of story and level up our craft. My name is Leslie Watts, and I'll be leading the discussion today. Here with me are my fellow roundtablers, Valerie Francis, Anne Holly, and Kim Kessler. This season, I'm studying point of view and narrative device in preparation for my upcoming story grid beat on the topic. If you have questions, please comment on the episode on the story grid site, send me a message in the story grid guild, or visit me directly at writership.com POV. This week, as I continue my study of point of view and narrative device, I'm looking at Waters of Versailles, a novella written by Kelly Robson, the winner of the 2016 Aurora Prize for Canadian Short Fiction and finalist for the 2016 Nebula Award and World Fantasy Award for Best Novella. As always, this is an adult conversation, and you may hear some adult words, but also this story contains a mildly explicit sex scene. So here's the story in the beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff. Beginning hook. Sylvain is engaged in sex with Annette when the pipes of his magical plumbing in the Palace of Versailles begin to leak, and he decides to leave it to his servant, Leblanc to handle. But when the leaks keep coming and LeBlanc is found dead, Sylvain must decide whether to give the Nixie a song, which she wants, or a gift, which would save him time. He tells Littlefish to behave herself and she'll earn a present, and the plumbing gets back to normal, at least for a while. In the middle build, while trying to make amends to Annette for his lack of attention, Sylvain learns that the king's mistress wants a cold champagne fountain for the king's birthday. But when the mistress issues a direct challenge as a way for Sylvain to become distinguished in the king's gaze, he must decide whether to accept the challenge. Sylvain introduces Littlefish to ice and champagne and entices her into the project with a song. In the ending payoff, for the king's birthday, Sylvain had Littlefish create a champagne fountain, and he soon learns that no one truly appreciates it and that he's a joke to the king's mistress. But when he finds a boy banging on the fountain with his ring, he must decide whether to protect his reputation or Littlefish. Sylvain breaks the fountain to get to Littlefish before telling her she can let all the water go. The water floods the palace, and Littlefish and Sylvain leave Paris for his home in the mountains. Okay, so that's the story, and I've included, based on the story spine, that this is a status tragic story with a secondary performance external genre. Friedman's cause and effect statement for a status tragic story is, when a sympathetic protagonist, ambitious and sophisticated enough to see the consequences of their actions, lacks an adequate mentor and makes a serious mistake in their attempt to rise, the result is a tragic fall in social standing. Now, if you see a morality story in Waters of Versailles, that's not an unreasonable conclusion. Tragic and morality protagonists share sophistication and a strong will at the beginning of a story and both subordinate the needs of others. The key difference that I see is in the specifics of what the character wants. Sylvain puts his needs and wants above those of others because he seeks to rise in society and he compromises his moral code. Now, if you're looking for other examples of a status tragic story, An American Tragedy by Theodore Dreiser is Sean's primary example, but you might also look at the character arcs for those characters in George R.R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire series who pursue the Iron Throne. Stannis Baratheon is an excellent example of this. 
So Valerie, what is your assessment of the genre here? I agree with what you've said, Leslie, but I just wanted to mention how important it is to really reflect on the genre of a story rather than making a knee-jerk reaction or or coming to a, a quick decision about what the genre of a particular story is. Now, with The Waters of Versailles, we can absolutely see a status story here, and you mentioned the morality, but there's also an element of the worldview revelation in that Sylvain discovers that the upper crust sees him as a joke. So it's possible to have elements of multiple genres in a story. That's okay. I mean, that's to be expected. It's like a a good stew, right? We'd have lots of spices in there contributing to the overall flavor of the dish. Same thing with stories. Now, sometimes when you've got a really talented storyteller, it's entirely possible to analyze the same story through two totally different lenses and see all of the obligatory scenes and conventions and be able to go through the editor's six core questions and all that good stuff. We saw that with Thelma and Louise. On the podcast here, if you go back and listen to that episode, we looked at it as a women's society story. But then when we were chatting with Sean about it later, he saw it as a completely different type of story. So there's often with these really well-crafted stories, different ways of looking at a story. What we want to remember to do, though, is we might have an an instinctive reaction to a story, but then take some time and reflect on it and look at the character arc, look at the spine and all these tools that we have to really make a firm decision. To me, it read like a status sentimental story because of its win but lose ending rather than a total tragic sellout like in an American tragedy. Sylvain escapes with the Nixie, the little water creature, and returns to the mountains that they both love. And the establishment of that love of and, and longing for the mountains and the fresh, clear waters is clear throughout the story. To my mind, he sacrifices worldly success. He just pulls the plug on it and gains a new and more inner uh, definition of success that involves caring for this other being who kind of depends on him. And I found the ending both happy and satisfying, which to me just said this isn't status tragic, it's more like status sentimental. I see where you're coming from because the ending does feel satisfying. But what happens, I think, is that Sylvain doesn't adjust his goal of wanting to rise within the court or his willingness to sacrifice the little fish until the end. And that he gives up his pursuit of success and accepts failure. If you compare it with Rocky, who at the end of the middle build realizes he has to adjust his goal, he chooses to go the distance against Creed instead of attempting to win the championship. But I definitely agree that it feels very positive and satisfying at the end. Well, that's true. He does kind of just throw in the towel at the crisis moment and walk away and run away. So he's not like super strong or admirable. Right. Okay. So now let's turn to point of view and narrative device. These two topics together answer the question, how do I deliver my story to the reader? Point of view tells you whether your story is in first person or omniscient, for example, and whether it's written in past or present tense. The narrative device or situation specifies who or what conveys the story, to whom, when, from where, in what form, and why. I explore point of view and narrative device in my bite size episode on choosing your point of view, and I'll include links to that episode and my point of view articles as well in the show notes. Now, I begin my analysis of point of view and narrative device by looking at the problem presented by the premise. So what's the premise here? Sylvain is an officer from the mountains trying to move up in society within the court of King Louis XV in 1738. He has to decide what he's willing to sacrifice to attain a higher status. The obvious external problem is that his attempt to rise within society depends on the cooperation of a Nixie or a water sprite that he took from a glacier lake in her infancy, and she possesses an independent mind and agenda. And what we have here is a cautionary tale about selling out, which is a lovely example of ideas that Sean has been talking about on the flagship podcast lately. 
the power hierarchy and the growth hierarchy. We risk compromising our personal moral code when we pursue status for its own sake, rather than pursuing the expression of our individual gifts. So some problems that are presented by this premise include, how do you show the character's journey of not understanding that they've compromised their moral code in their attempt to rise within society to seeing it clearly? Now, Sylvain exploits Littlefish for his own gain, but we need to care about him and root for him anyway. So the story needs to rely on suspense, but be close enough to Sylvain's experience that we do care about him. Another issue is that the story's focus is on present events, but there are events from the past that are needed to illuminate his dilemma and help us empathize with Sylvain. And then finally, in terms of the story form, we need to keep the story narrowly focused for a novella while presenting all of the fantasy elements, historical details, the multiple levels within society on all the things that a fantasy reader wants to find in a story. So no problem, right? Okay, well, let's look at how Kelly Robson solves these problems through point of view and narrative device. What's the controlling idea for the story? So this is the intersection of the genre and the point of view and narrative device. The controlling idea that is typical for the genre is that failure results when a person sells out their values for unworthy goals. So if we make it a little more specific, we might say that failure in this case happens because Sylvain expresses his gift and exploits Littlefish for unworthy goals to impress those who can't appreciate the gift. Essentially, that's part of the why of the story. So what's the point of view here? I've identified it as selective omniscience. This is not a godlike narrator moving from mind to mind and speaking to the reader directly. It's as if we're coming through the mind of a single character or multiple characters in the case of multiple selective omniscience. But we're not coming from their direct point of view. So it's not a first person narrative. The words are ones that Sylvain would use, not those of a third-party narrator. So there's some mental gymnastics involved in understanding this construct of selective omniscience, but it reminds me of meditation and the way that there's a part of the self that is observing and recording experiences and thoughts as memories. This is a reflecting self rather than the self who is thinking the thoughts. In a way, it's as if a first-person narrative were translated without comment by the writer of the story. And I actually need to make a correction. After reviewing Waters of Versailles, I would now say that The Bear Came Over the Mountain by Alice Munro is neutral omniscience with a godlike narrator rather than selective omniscience like we have here. And I'll make a note in the show notes for that episode to explain my current thinking. So on to the narrative device. With selective omniscience, you have a slightly different narrative situation. It's covert because everything is coming through the mind of the character. The goal is for the narrating entity to be invisible. The writing style here is a bit complex and it's full of sensory detail, but it doesn't draw attention to itself. So it's very skillfully done. When we talk about the narrative device, we normally talk about who. So who is telling the story? In this case, it's that the reflecting character replays the experiences and thoughts and presents them without commentary. To whom is the reflecting character delivering this replay? I would say it's for the individual who is experiencing the story. So in this case, Sylvain. But we as readers gain access to this through the imagination of the writer. They translate the ideas and events into words. 
in what form by implication is this happening? Again, it feels like a replay of the experiences and thoughts. So in a way it feels cinematic. And honestly, I think this would make a very interesting film. I totally agree with you. And I kept imagining Guillermo del Toro on the job for this one. Leslie, can you elaborate a little bit more on what you think makes something cinematic? I'm so glad you asked this question, Kim, because I wrote that and hadn't really given it a lot of thought. But I would say because the reflecting self is only reflecting the experiences or replaying the experiences and thoughts of the character, it has the quality of memory, like a film playing before the mind's eye. But again, it's translated into words by the writer. So it has something in common with the descriptive narration available for people who have impaired vision. And the style of the presentation reflects the point of view character absolutely, but it's not self-conscious the way a first-person narration would be. It's as if the character isn't aware that someone is eavesdropping on their thoughts and experience. Now, I haven't done Anne's analysis. That's coming up. But my guess is this story possesses several of the qualities of the bear came over the mountain and broke back mountain that make them great material for film adaptation by skilled filmmakers. So even though the point of view in those stories is different, they have similar qualities. So if I take all of these details, how well does this work in this story? Well, I think the point of view choice here works really well. Selective omniscience gives us a neutral reflecting character to convey experiences and show how the character reacts to them. This is an ideal vehicle for a story that is basically one big crisis. Our attention is directed to the details that are relevant to the way Sylvain responds to his situation just as the mind would do. It would attempt to reach for relevant facts and memories to help identify problems and solutions. So the real problem in this story is not how Sylvain will design the system of pipes and make the whole system work. The presence of the water sprite takes care of those questions. So the real problem or question we're exploring is what is Sylvain willing to sacrifice to move up in society? So if we're not concerned with the mechanics of the plumbing, how does the writer direct our attention to the real problem and which details are used to accomplish this? We're shown current events and how Sylvain is trying to identify tools and obstacles in pursuit of what he wants. We are privy to his thoughts, so we know his subjective opinion about what he observes and experiences. In other words, what these things mean to him. We see how he responds in the moment, and because Robson makes the scene crises so clear, we learn which options are foreclosed to Sylvain because of his initial responses. We're shown past events that are relevant to particular current situations, so we understand how Sylvain has come to be here. Observing through the mind of the protagonist in third person gives us the advantage of intimacy without the self-conscious telling of the story we would get in first person. Sylvain doesn't know we're observing, so he doesn't alter the narration for our benefit. Now, we do see less direct action than we would see with a first-person narration as well, but that's not what we're going for here in a story of this kind. We also can't watch the character from the outside except through the actions and the words of other characters or actual physical mirrors observed by the character. Now, we might see those in editorial or neutral omniscience. Also, no one addresses the reader directly, so if the writer wants to use dramatic irony, 
In other words, give the reader more information than the character possesses, they must do so through symbolism or implication. And in this way, selective omniscience dictates the writer's style to a certain extent. The constraints of selective omniscient point of view come from the character through whose mind we experience the story. So with a godlike editorial or neutral omniscient point of view, the narration comes through the mind of that narrating entity, which becomes another character to consider. And a word of caution here that it comes with fewer technical constraints to guide the writer or provide objective limits on which details to include. And that can be really difficult for a new writer. Those are the kinds of things that are different from a selective omniscient point of view. So that's a big download, lots to think about there. But that's what I've learned from looking at Waters of Versailles. Kim, you're looking at life values through conventions and obligatory scenes. What have you found there? First of all, I just have to say that I'm so glad that Leslie chose the story for us this week. This season, I've been studying how to craft beginnings, which has morphed slightly into conventions and obligatory scenes because a large function of the beginning, aside from hooking the reader's interest, is to set up the story by introducing the life values at stake through the conventions. These are the genre-specific characters, the genre-specific setting, and the genre-specific circumstances of your story. And it introduces all of those so that they can be turned on the first obligatory scene, which is the inciting incident, and then all of the other obligatory scenes thereafter. Today, rather than just looking at the beginning, I want to look at conventions and obligatory scenes that unfold over the course of the story and hopefully demonstrate how a genre's conventions and obligatory scenes are the tangible representations of the life value change across the story. They are the thing that creates the genre arc. So let's go through the conventions for the status genre. So the first convention is a character, a strong mentor figure. Now, because this is a tragic story, the mentor is either absent or flawed, or in some cases, the protagonist is just too blinded by ambition to heed the guidance. Now, in this case, in Sylvan's case, the mentor feels absent. He does have fellow strivers who offer him sound observations and advice, but again, he does not yield his futile pursuit of success. The next convention is a circumstance and also part of the setting. It's a big social problem as subtext. And in this case, <laughs> in France in 1738, we have class issues as well as the exploitation of others as the subtext. Another character is a shapeshifter. This is a secondary character that says one thing and then does another. Now, the one I could really pinpoint here is the king's mistress, who praises Sylvan in public and then insults him in private, specifically by naming the monkey after him. In this regard, Annette is the same to some extent. Other characters are the herald or threshold guardian that is a fellow striver who sold out. Now, in this case, I see Annette and Gerard both as fellow strivers who play the game. They both act as heralds for Sylvan, but they're not blinded by their ambition. They seem to see it all clearly, and again, they're playing the game. They're fine with where they're at with selling out. Now, a specific circumstance that will happen in a status story is a point of no return where the truth will out moment. This is going to be a revelatory turning point. This is when the protagonist knows that they can never go back to the way things used to be. This is when Sylvain learns that the monkey has been named after him. This revelatory turning point results in utter disillusionment for Sylvain. He realizes that all his striving and accomplishments are meaningless, and he recognizes that his success is false. He is at the negation of the negation. And then in that moment, by abandoning the pursuit of it, he actually moves up the life value spectrum to failure, which is just fascinating. And a final convention, again, another circumstance that we have is an ironic win but lose or lose but win, bittersweet ending. Here, Sylvain loses his status at the palace. He, it, it results in failure for him, but he gains his moral code and he gains a new position of esteem in caring for Little Fish as her papa. Okay, so those are the conventions of a status story and how they apply here in the status tragic arc. Now, what I noticed about the obligatory scenes is that you can think of them in two contexts. 
first within the 19,000-word novella that happens here, and also in the larger context of Sylvain's life. His backstory leading up to this specific installment of his life is a status story. This is really fascinating. The first obligatory scene is an inciting opportunity or challenge. Now, in terms of the novella, we see this as a challenge. It's when the pipes begin to leak, which I posit is truly caused by LeBlanc's death and that little fish not having anyone to play with and she gets bored and so she relaxes a little bit on how well the water is moving through the pipes. But if we look at this in terms of Sylvain's life, it's the opportunity to rise in status because of the state of disrepair of the Versailles fountains. The next obligatory scene is the protagonist leaves home to seek fortune. Now, within the context of the novella, he continues to always seek to maintain and gain success through his chosen means, through freshwater plumbing, through the palace. Now, the thing about a status story is that there is no refusal of the call. It's just that the protagonist is all in from the get-go. And that is exactly what we see here for Sylvain. Now, within his life, this appears that, again, he heads to Versailles and he captures a Nixie on the way to help him. The next obligatory scene is forced to adapt to a new environment. The protagonist relies on their old habits and they humiliate themselves. Now, in the novella, even after LeBlanc's death, Sylvain continues to keep up his appearances. He keeps striving to fix everything. He's constantly at odds with keeping up appearances, which often backfires. And we notice this in the way that he constantly is having to exit a room, right? Is he He's trying to maintain composure as he exits. But there's a moment when he first sees the crack in the ceiling above the statue of Hermes that he, quote, fled like a rabbit panicking for its burrow, no attention to dignity. In a later scene, when the crack really begins to come undone, he distracts Annette from the falling plaster with a dip and he kisses her. But then she slaps him and calls him a beast in front of onlookers. So these are low points for Sylvain's dignity in his effort to repair everything. Within Sylvain's life, we also see this moment where he relies on his old habits and he doesn't adapt. Now, this is when Sylvain first brings the Nixie to the cistern. He cannot coax her out of the canteen, and he's very frustrated. And LeBlanc schools him regarding his misunderstanding of the Nixie and his expectations of her. He can't treat it like a child that knows better, and he can't treat it like a soldier. She's a wild animal. And so LeBlanc demonstrates a better way. The next obligatory scene is when the protagonist learns what the antagonist's object of desire is and then sets out to achieve it for himself. In the novella, I see this as twofold. One, it's the continued pressure from the courtiers for him to perform amazing feats. And two, from the Nixie that is bored. He realizes both of these things. And this prompts him to come up with solutions to satisfy both and achieve more esteem and higher status. And this is what leads him to invent the velvet sleeves. Within the context of Sylvain's life, this seems to be his transition from merely fixing the fountains to creating their indoor plumbing spectacle and the thrones that denote status among the courtiers. So again, this is where he sees that the courtiers want distinction, and then he sets out to achieve it. By giving them distinction, he then will achieve distinction himself. The next obligatory scene is that the protagonist's initial strategy to outmaneuver the antagonist fails. In the novella, we see this as when the king's mistress decides that she no longer wants a water toilet because it's not special anymore. Everybody has one. And this is the problem that he had solved with the velvet tubes, and he was able to give more of the flushing toilets to others. In this moment, now he feels like he has to come up with something better to win her favor back, and that's where he promises the champagne fountain. Now, within the context of Sylvain's life, The moment when the protagonist's initial strategy to outmaneuver the antagonist fails, I see this as when the novella actually opens. His initial strategy to exploit the Nixie's powers to gain favor and status with the courtiers and the king fails when LeBlanc dies because he's been so reliant and dependent on him in keeping the Nixie satisfied up until this moment. Sylvain has never taken an interest in Littlefish himself. He's only been focused on his own ambition, and he has been short-sighted. Now, this is one of his major mistakes, something that all status-tragic protagonists will make. 
This leads us to the moment when the novella and Sylvain's life, the two sort of status stories that we have going on here, where they merge during this all is lost moment. When the protagonist realizes that they must change their definition of success or risk betraying their morality. Here is where Sylvain learns that the king's mistress has named the monkey after him. And this is that revelatory turning point. He is not respected or regarded the way that he thought. And therefore, all of his success and all of his status is a ruse. And he recognizes that in this moment, he is at the negation of the negation. He has failure that is masked as success. This leads us to the core event, the moment where the protagonist must choose to do what is necessary to attain status or reject the world that they strive to join. Here we see that he rejects the world that he strives to join. He destroys the champagne fountain. He rescues little fish and tells her to let all the water go, something that she hadn't done even when the pipes were leaking. Then this leads us to the final obligatory scene where the protagonist either saves or loses themselves based on what they've done in the core event. Now, in this case, this is where we get this win but lose because he loses his status because he rejected the world that he sought to join. He ends in failure, but he's no longer exploiting the Nixie. So instead, now he values her and cares for her. And so together, they leave Versailles to return home. And so while he loses his status, he gains esteem in another way. What I love about this, and I think this is really what Anne was feeling because I was definitely feeling it the same way and really was like, is this status sentimental or is it tragic? I don't know. And talking with Leslie is what really helped clarify what was going on here. So even in cautionary status stories that end negative on the global life value spectrum, the protagonist will often attempt to make amends and assist another person, even though it's too late for them. That's why this story felt like a positive ending, because the image of Sylvain leaving the palace life behind to return home and care for little fish is really tender to me. So this story felt like a positive ending, even though it's cautionary. Now, we see this happen in many cautionary tales. So whether we're talking about a status pathetic story, a status tragic story, or a morality punitive story, and there may be others, but those are the ones that I'm most familiar with, even in those stories, they've reached the negation of the negation. It's never too late for them to make a contribution to others. Thanks, Kim. And I just want to say, be sure to check out the show notes because Kim's got some extra things that we don't have time for in the episode that are really valuable and interesting. So definitely check those out. Okay, Valerie, you're looking at forces of antagonism this week. How does Waters of Versailles measure up on that score? Well, forces of antagonism, I have to say, is a huge topic. I mean, I knew it was big before I got into this, <laughs> but it is massive. So I will do my best to cover as much as I can, but I'm still just scratching the surface here. As I continue my study into this area, what I've been doing is focusing on their role in a story. What, like, why do we need forces of antagonism? What purpose do they serve? Now, I've heard things like the middle bill belongs to the villain, and it's the villain that makes the hero heroic, but like, what does that mean? In previous episodes, I've already mentioned that forces of antagonism come in three varieties. They're either internal, external, or societal. And while all three might be present in a story, one of them will take priority. And this is something else I'm noticing in stories. Everything has a hierarchy, everything. So what we want to do is figure out which force of antagonism takes priority. And often that has to do with genre. Waters of Versailles is a global internal genre story. So not surprisingly, I think the primary force of antagonism here comes from within Sylvain. He is his own worst enemy. His pride, his desire to climb the social ladder. I mean, these are the things that should ultimately lead to his downfall. Little Fish is an external antagonist, and of course, Madame Tessé represents the societal antagonist. Now, listing the forces of antagonism is the easy part, <laughs> but looking at how they function within a story is a bit trickier. And I'm learning that antagonists, I mean, they just permeate every aspect of your story, and they have a lot of purposes. But I'm just going to focus on three here today. And those are, one, they create conflict in the story. Two, they reveal character. And three, basically, they just drive the whole plot. 
Conflict at every unit of story is essential. Without conflict, you have not got a story. You've got a bunch of words on a page, but it's not a story. The conflict must get more intense as the complications progress and the stakes escalate. The protagonists want something, but there are people, conditions, and circumstances getting in the way of this. These clearly are the forces of antagonism, so you can see one of the reasons why it's so important to have clearly defined objects of desire, right? What does Sylvain want? Well, it's to rise up the ranks of society. And what's standing in the way of him getting it? Well, first and foremost, it's his inability to realize that people like Madame Tessé will never see him as anything other than the toilet man. <laughs> He's a joke to them. This speaks to his internal need. And Little Fish stands in the way of him getting it because initially he can't control her, right? And of course, society, through Madame Tessé and her cohorts, won't allow him to be anything other than their servant. So yes, technically conflict is there and antagonists exist on all three levels. But unfortunately, I don't think they're as effective as they need to be to maintain a story of this length. The reason you need to create a great villain or villains is to ensure that the hero is put through his paces. This is the stuff that reveals character. It's by going toe to toe with the bad guy that the good guy finds out what he's made of. Remember that protagonists are revealed by their action under pressure. Well, it's the antagonist that creates these pressure points, the crisis moments that lead to the climactic actions that reveal the character. Little Fish behaves in only one way. Therefore, she can only create one kind of situation which reveals only one aspect of Sylvain's character. Madame Tessé is a completely flat character. When it comes to Sylvain, she too behaves in only one way. Therefore, the pressure she puts on him can only re reveal one aspect of his personality. He is what he is. In terms of the internal force of antagonism, we don't get to explore that a whole lot either. Sylvain isn't tested enough because the complications don't progress and the stakes don't rise. Sylvain's object of desire is clearer that, you know, there's no problem with that. But as far as he's concerned, there's only one thing getting in the way of him achieving his object of desire. He figures he just needs to get more toilets to more people. As soon as he finds out there's another true obstacle, and that is the attitude of the, the muckety-mucks, the upper crust, and that they see him as a joke, Sylvain throws in the towel. Now compare this to the way George Bailey is tested in It's a Wonderful Life. George also has a series of obstacles to overcome, but each one tests him a little more and a little more and a little bit differently until finally he is so distraught that he considers suicide. Now, if you're thinking that there isn't enough space in a novella to develop all this, I strongly encourage you to go back and read Alice Munro. Her stories are so much shorter and way more complex. A few weeks ago, Leslie and I talked about why writers should study masterworks. And Leslie said, they're called masterworks, not mediocre works. And boy, that really hit a home with me. And while I think Waters of Versailles, you know, it's a fine story. I think it's a mediocre work, not a masterwork. I know I feel like the Simon Cowell of the podcast. <laughs> I don't want to sound like that. There's definitely worthy things here in this story, but I'm focusing specifically on forces of antagonism, and I don't think we can consider Waters of Versailles to be a masterwork for this particular storytelling principle. And this loops us back to what Sean has been saying over and over and over, and we've got a whole episode about it. He keeps saying that we need to read widely and deeply, because if we're only ever reading stories at this level of writing, we're going to learn some stuff but we're not going to really appreciate what a novella can be. Now, if the forces of antagonism had been properly designed and developed, then we wouldn't need Annette's on-the-nose comments about Sylvain being a striver. It is painfully on the nose. It really is. The whole story is about him trying to move up the ranks in society. So we should see him facing various challenges that make his social climb more and more difficult. We shouldn't need a herald to tell us this. Now, I give kudos to Kelly Robson for wanting to give Sylvain 
depth of character. That is for having his public self and his private self at odds with one another. I mean, this is exactly what I was talking about a couple of episodes ago when Leslie and I talked about character development. There's a difference between true character and characterization, as Robert McKee describes it. Characterization, of course, is all the stuff that we observe on the surface and the true character is who the person is on the inside. What we need to do as writers is create forces of antagonism that reveal the true character by forcing the protagonist to act or make a decision under pressure. The only real crisis moment for Sylvain comes at the end when he finds out that Madame Tessé has named the monkey after him. His action in that moment of pressure reveals his true character. And what does he do? He has little fish burst the pipes so that the water wreaks havoc and creates a whole lot of surface damage to the castle. Then he leaves. So essentially, he vandalizes the palace and runs away. So at his core, Sylvain is juvenile. Honestly, I'm not sure that's the effect the author was going for. This action under pressure calls into question his object of desire. I really wondered, well, how badly did did Sylvain want the social status? At the first test, the first real test, he cut and run. So we need the antagonist to create conflict that reveals character, but what's more, the pressure points have got to be varied. This is the plot I'm talking about now. As writers, we can't repeat a complication in exactly the same way because it's really boring. The story doesn't move forward and the reader is going to know exactly what the protagonist will do and how the whole thing will play out. Now, Waters of Versailles repeats the same couple of obstacles over and over. That's partially because the antagonists are flat, but it's also because there's only one real complication at play here, and that's whether little fish will make the pipes leak or not. Believe it or not, that's the one question driving this entire narrative. I mean, I did a whole series on narrative drive, and it's all about having the reader ask questions. Yes, we know Sylvain wants to move up in society, but until the last couple of pages, we're led to believe that whether he'll do that depends on whether he can continue to deliver indoor plumbing. The plumbing doesn't exist because of his engineering prowess. He has not ingeniously figured out how to plumb the castle. He does it by manipulating and bullying little fish, which, by the way, is more evidence of his juvenile nature. That means that she, the little fish, has the power to destroy him. The novella's opening sentence refers to leaks, and the whole opening scene, actually, I really like it. It does a fantastic job of setting up the situation that Sylvain has gotten himself into. I thought the the opening scene, I thought, was really well done. The problem is that's the only real challenge he faces. There's leaks and then suddenly there's no leaks. And Sylvain has only one situation to react to and he does it the same way every time. When he visits Little Fish in the cisterns, he does the same thing each time. He brings her a gift to effectively bribe her to do his bidding. Now, yes, the gifts get more elaborate, but ultimately it's a repeat of the same complication. Because the complications don't progress, the stakes don't escalate. So to recap, forces of antagonism, among other things, they create conflict, they reveal character, and they drive the whole story. Therefore, while the most important character in your story is the protagonist, the second most important character is the antagonist. Thank you, Valerie. You know, forces of antagonism in internal genre stories are really tricky. So I'm glad you're looking at this and showing us where we should look to make our forces of antagonism truly antagonistic. Okay, Anne, you're exploring novellas. What have you found? I found this to be really interesting because a novella is not a form that I am in any habit of reading. With Waters of Versailles, it seemed clear to me that we're in a very different category than we've been in with the truly short stories that we've looked at so far this season, Pilgrims last week and Wolves of Karelia back in January. To me, reading and understanding those stories, those very short stories, felt more like reading poetry than reading a novel. Each one of them required this close attention and that careful scanning of word by word that you really do with poetry to totally unlock its meaning. Both of those stories did at least as much evoking or implying as actual storytelling. 
Then we moved into long short story territory with Alice Munro's The Bear Came Over the Mountain at 10,500 words. That story was easier to grasp on the first read, at least in part because Munro had four or 5,000 extra words to stretch out in. She had room to expand on her ideas, to, to leave more clues, and to show more details to help us follow. Now, with Waters of Versailles, we've got twice as many words as that, and it reads much more like a novel than like a short story. The protagonist, Sylvain, has 13 or 14 full scenes in which to experience the full arc of his status story. There's room for two significant secondary characters, both Annette and the Nixie, and a fairly large cast of named but minor characters who run around the halls of Versailles and provide background. I don't disagree in principle with Valerie, that the character arc lacks subtlety and the forces of antagonism are a bit weak. But I'd argue that Kelly Robson knows her audience, fantasy readers. The whole heart of this story is the unique use of a mythical creature in an otherwise realistic historical setting and the funny what-if idea of giving toilets, flush toilets, to 18th century French aristocrats at Versailles. Now, I think it's fair here for that reason to leave aside the Nobel Prize winning skill level and literary style that elevate Monroe's work, because this story aspires to different standards for a different audience. It would, in fact, make a good, funny, light, popular movie. So as a quick reminder, here's how Waters of Versailles conforms to the seven Hollywood don'ts. These are the seven rules not to break if you want to write a story that would make a good movie. And the first one is that it's between 15,000 and 80,000 words. That's pretty much the definition of a novella length work. Number two, it's written in clear scenes and has the standard three act structure of a beginning, middle and end. There's nothing odd about the structure. As published, the scenes are even numbered for us. Number three, it doesn't depend on a particular authorial voice or style to deliver its message. It's not that it doesn't have those, it just doesn't depend heavily on them. And it doesn't depend at all on a tone such as sarcasm or irony. It's a straightforward, mostly linear story arc with one flashback, uh, with a mostly hidden and unobtrusive narrative device, as Leslie has so vividly pointed out to us. Number four, it contains no literary allusions, philosophical ideas, or abstract meditations. Number five, there's not a lot of symbolism, as far as I can tell, except what the period setting suggests about power and status and how all of this was going to come to guillotines in about 50 more years. Number six, it is not in the first person, and there's also very little internal free and direct narration, so there would be no need for the dreaded voiceover in a film version. Words and actions that actors can do are on the page and will translate very well to film. And number seven, finally, there's the rule about too much historical detail. There's no complex political reality that the audience needs to learn about in order to understand the story. Show us the huge silk gowns and the towering powdered wigs and the glittering grand mirrored galleries of Versailles, and we will know all that we need to know about the historical background. So here's a question that I've been thinking about. If Pilgrims, which we looked at last week, could have benefited by being 30% longer, as it was before Liz Gilbert had to cut it down to the bone to get it published, could Waters of Versailles be shorter? Sure, the story spine, Sylvan's status arc, could have come across without things like the parrot or the details of the Nixie's lair. It could have worked without the funeral scene for LeBlanc and with fewer near disasters of the leaking pipes, those sort of non-escalating complications that Valerie was talking about. But brevity is not everything. I enjoyed this story, at least in part because the author, Kelly Robson, used the novella length to play. She knows her audience. She developed an original fantasy idea set in this lush and decadent real-world historical setting, and she made it fun. She took the time to show us, for example, the pregnant wife who kisses Sylvain on both cheeks in gratitude for delivering her a toilet. She gave us time to watch the Nixie grow and change a little bit. She had room to develop Sylvan's descent into being a total sellout in several incremental steps, each one bolstered by events arising out of the setting. What room are they in? How powerful are the people being inconvenienced by the leaks? And so forth. She reveled in the details of court dress and sexual shenanigans. She gave us enough landscape of the French Alps and background to understand what Sylvan and the Nixie really want and miss. 
Now, in the past, publishing gatekeepers dictated the market. Weekly magazines published short stories, book publishers published novels of varying lengths, and novellas would be generally too long for the magazines, but a little too skinny for the bookshelves, and would be included in anthologies or maybe quarterly reviews or maybe The New Yorker. I found this great description by someone called Beth Carswell on the Abe Books site, which, by the way, is a great place to find used books. Poor novellas. They are the middle child, the Jan Brady of the book world. (laughs) Too short to be novels, too long to be short stories. Overlooked in many lists of excellent literature, novellas just don't get their due. And some readers might not even realize that some of their most beloved stories were novellas. Lacking the compact one-two punch of a short story and the delicious, slowly unfolding anticipation of a novel, it might be easy to dismiss the novella as a bland middle ground, but that would be a mistake. Sometimes a novella is just the thing. So why would you write a novella? Or more to the point, why would I write a novella since that's what I seem to be doing at present with my Brokeback Mountain-inspired story from the Masterwork Experiment? Until today's episode, I had no idea that there was a formula for deciding your story's length, but now I do, so I quickly applied it to my own story. Mary Robinette Cole, who came up with the formula, thank you, Leslie, for finding that because it's really cool, says you add the number of characters and the number of locations and then multiply that sum by 750, essentially because you will need about 750 words on average to flesh out each one of those elements. There's a little more to it than that, and I'll include details in the show notes. But after putting my own story in progress through the formula, I came up with about 40,000 words. Now, my style has become leaner over the years, and my awareness of exposition has become keener, and I also know how to get rid of excess scenes or non-working scenes. Those are not the things that are pushing my novella into novel territory. Complexity is what's doing that. I find that the stories I want to tell need that one additional character and that one additional location and the additional subplot that ties those elements in. I got to tell you, it was such a relief to me to find out that my being a long writer arises more from all of my interesting ideas than from boring bad habits. But if my publisher, aka Sean, like Liz Gilbert's publisher, tells me this current story needs to fall under 25,000 words, then my job is to focus on only one of my two main ideas and let the other one go. I need to cut at least one big event and make the story work without it. Secondary and tertiary characters will need fewer lines and less agency in the story. Now, on the other hand, if my publisher rejects the story altogether and I decide I want to expand it into a full-length novel of 70,000 words or more, I'm not going to do that by padding it out with description and exposition, am I? No, I am not. I'm going to expand the role of at least one secondary character. I'm going to build up all four of the big events and maybe add a couple more. I'm going to expand on both the external and the internal genres and possibly even explore a third supporting genre. So why write a novella? Because in today's world of self-publishing and eBooks, you can. Today's readers might appreciate that Jan Brady Goldilocks zone of a story they don't have to commit to for longer than, say, a short flight or a long commute. Plenty of room to play, and the format doesn't require that you painstakingly prove the value of every single word by making them all do double and triple duty. If you have a relatively simple story to tell with one or two main characters and one or two locations and one or two main ideas, then the novella is a great target to aim for. And also, if you have movie adaptation dreams, the novella format could be your best friend. Thank you, Anne, for illuminating this area. There are so many decisions we have to make as writers, and a lot of times we don't really know what guidance is available, and I appreciate your going through this with your project. Okay, we like to round out our discussion with a few key takeaways for writers who want to level up their own writing craft. So what have we learned this week? I have a very short takeaway, but I think it's really important. So I want writers to understand that conventions and obligatory scenes are not extra. They're not optional. And they're not random. They are the tangible representations of the genre arc itself. And for me, Waters of Versailles really drives home the need for writers to spend a lot of time developing their antagonists. 
They are the second most important characters in a story. And without them, the protagonist doesn't arc and the plot fizzles. I feel like our analysis of this week's story drives home an important point about writing what you want to write and letting the story you want to write dictate the length and the format. Maybe your idea isn't big enough for a full-length novel, or maybe you're not the kind of writer who's going to hone every word to within an inch of its life to craft a short story. That's okay. Write a novella. Have fun. Even in the absence of one or two important storytelling principles, you might still get nominated for a nebula. So go for it. I started my point of view and narrative device quest about 18 months ago because I wanted to understand the fundamentals of how writers make this very important technical choice. So the more I study and compare examples, the more I realize how useful it is to decide based on all the facts before you begin to write. Now, that's not to say that you're doomed if you've already written one or more drafts of your story and haven't given it much thought. You can reconsider any time along the journey of writing your story, but the ideal time to begin thinking about this choice is before you write because point of view and narrative device affect every other technical decision you make in the story. My other takeaway is that one of the best ways to fulfill the promise of the initial inspiration for your story is to choose the point of view that is the best vehicle for your particular message and premise. Of course, that seems really obvious. You can use trial and error or you can guess, but the better course is to really understand what the options are. Practical aspects, for example, first or selective omniscient point of view, limit you to a single point of view character at a time. Again, that's obvious, but how do you choose between them? Well, it depends on your story and what you're trying to accomplish with it. So understanding the options and having an intimate knowledge of your story will help you write a better one. To wind up the episode, we take questions from our listeners, and this week's question comes to us from Karen McDaniel in the Story Grid Guild. Karen writes, I would love to hear an in-depth discussion of story life values. Some of the ones I'm coming up with are certain to uncertain, dismayed to re-energized, excluded to included, or apprehensive to hopeful. I'm just not confident about my understanding of this area. Karen goes on to ask, part of my question involves whether the value shift in a scene has to be in the same continuum as the genre overall. So in a thriller, does every scene need to deal with life and death? Thanks for your question, Karen. Now, an in-depth discussion of life values would have my fellow roundtablers pulling the plug on me pretty quickly, but let me see what I can offer to shed a little light on this topic, and I'll include plenty of links in the show notes for some basics as well as some more advanced study, so be sure and check those out. To answer your second question first, Individual scenes don't need to turn on the global life value. So for example, life and death for action, success and failure for status, justice and injustice for crime. Unless they are one of the obligatory scenes or one of the 15 core scenes that make up the story spine. That said, the description of a regular scene's life value shift should help you see how it moves the protagonist or their situation along the continuum or not. And either way, whatever result you get from analyzing your scene, it's great information that you need to know. As we think about the answers to the story grid scene analysis questions or entries in the spreadsheet, it's important to remember what we're trying to achieve with this inquiry. Scene descriptions are meant to help you revise your novel, so they should, as clearly as possible, distill the content of the scene into a few words that immediately capture the most relevant change that happens. Now, this can be a very subjective process, as Sean mentioned in a recent episode of the StoryGrid podcast. The life value descriptions you list sound completely valid for a given scene. So it sounds like you're moving in the right direction. 
the question is, do these descriptors tell you what's happening in a useful way that allow you to evaluate if the scene turns and whether it affects the global story? So as with any skill, you'll gain proficiency and confidence with study and practice. So how should you be practicing? I suggest reviewing The Silence of the Lambs and Pride and Prejudice and the Contender and Masterwork guides as they're published. Read the scenes first, make your best guess at the life value shift in the scene, then look at what Sean or one of the StoryGrid certified editors has suggested as the value. So you can reconsider and adjust as needed. Also, I recommend joining a study group to review stories or scenes and then compare answers. So if you get a different answer, that doesn't necessarily mean you're wrong, but you might consider if you would adjust your answer in light of seeing what someone else thinks about it. I hope that helps. Thanks for your question, Karen. Now, if you have a question about point of view or narrative device or any other story principle, you can ask it on Twitter at StoryGridRT, or better still, by going to storygrid.com slash resources, clicking on Editor Roundtable Podcast, and leaving us a voice message. That wraps it up for this week. Thank you, Anne, Kim, and Valerie for your excellent editorial insights into Waters of Versailles. We hope our discussion has given you a better grasp of how to think about point of view and narrative device in your own stories. You can find links and additional materials in the show notes at storygrid.com. If you want to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes as well. Don't forget, I am collecting questions for my upcoming StoryGrid Beat on point of view and narrative device. If you have specific nagging questions, you can leave a comment in the show notes, send a message to me through the StoryGrid Guild, or reach out to me at writership.com POV. Join us next time when Kim will look at life values in beginnings in the film and novel Silver Linings Playbook. Why not give it a look or read and follow along with us? Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. 